or the negligence of their husband, but they're actually in the throes of discontentment. Did you catch anything in that scenario that makes you go, red flag, red flag, red flag? Christina. Great point. Old school jealousy, straight up. That's what that is. Didi. She's, she's, not, she's not using her best source of um, help to be, she's not going to her best source of help for her situation. She's not communing with God, absolutely. Absolutely. Any other red flags people caught? Honey. <laughs> not going to church. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the, not, not going to beat that, that, that horse. The, the idea is that, yes, you can recognize the reality of discontent by the effect that it produces. Burroughs offers a couple of additional things. Um, he says, if you were just pained by a bad circumstance and not discontented over it, um, bitterness and anger probably wouldn't be the fruit. Um, he says, to Patty's point, if it were just an awareness of your condition, it generally would not hinder you from doing your duties. So if there are things that you are supposed to be doing, whether that is rejoicing, attending church, being a part of the body, you know, discontentment will often lead a person to abdicate those responsibilities and duties, whereas someone who is just in a bad place and recognizing they're in a bad place is still going to put the effort in to try. Um, and then uh, if it were just an awareness of a bad state, you could still bless God. The lack of prayer, the lack of time and word indications that this person is inherently seeing this as a, as a, as a God word issue. Questions on that one? Make sense? It's all going to be like this, so uh, um, I'll pause each, after each one. Christina. Just a nuance. It's not like, like, I know that when I'm in pain, I, and I see it like, I, I mean, I see it specifically with my sister who has been through like, like significant physical injury and pain. If she hits a nerve wrong, her first response is to kind of like stomp her feet in anger to cover up the pain because anger so often, and I always tell my kids that like, if you see an angry person, they're awfully often either in pain or afraid. Um, and so I think that there's some nuance to that, but like when we start directing that anger at God, we relieve ourselves of his comfort and his provision to help us get through that pain. So I think that there's like a, it's like, you know, it's like, it's what you're feeding in that moment, even in that nuance of that moment. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. It's a great point. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it, you might you might have a reaction it's a question of, you know, do you persist in it? Do you, do you lean into it? Do you lean away from it? Is it temporary? Like all, all indicators of where your heart might be. All right, let's go to the second one then. Um, I am not discontented over my circumstances. I am just grieved by my sin. So for this one, let's add a little bit to our scenario. Um, the everything I said is still the same. But let's pretend hypothetically that in addition to that, this particular person can trace her bad situation to something that she did or had some level of, of, of responsibility for. So uh, a couple ways that could look. So she's in this terrible state, um, you know, this, this dumpster fire of a life, as she would say. Um, and, uh, but maybe, maybe as she looks back, she had strong indicators, big red flags that this guy is going to do this exact thing 
before she ended up marrying him. Uh, maybe she had some some strong indicators, big red flags, that he wasn't actually a Christian at all. You know, he uh, you know uh, he was he was an unbeliever, and he met her, and then miraculously, after she told him that it was really important that he was a Christian, he came to faith, and 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 they got married. You know, there was no actual fruit, and it, it, it had all the indicators of being superficial. Um, Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe, and this this one, I, I don't mean to be controversial here, but this just sort of illustrates sort of the complexities of these relationships. Maybe his workaholism and his uh, harboring resentment towards her manifest and critiques is because she did something that he hasn't forgiven. You know, whether that's adultery or something else, she did something wrong and then he has not forgiven her and has not processed that and is, is it's manifesting in this neglect um, not to excuse his neglect and his, his bad husbanding in any way shape or form but those sorts of dynamics happen in relationships unfortunately and so um, regardless regardless of the scenario you can imagine she is tracing her situation to something that she did she's responsible for and so she says you don't, you're misunderstanding me. I'm, I'm not grieved over my circumstances. I'm not angry over my circumstances. I'm angry over my sin. I'm heartbroken that I caused this, that I brought ruin on myself and my family. I grieve my sin. I hate my sin. My anger and sorrow and whatever else comes from a heart that hates evil and loves good. And this is the, this is the, the next excuse or rationalization that Burroughs uh, swats down. And I think in fairness, um, you know, th- th- this particular one, in the scenario I painted, it's, it's pretty clear that she's not in that place. Um, but, uh, you know, Christina mentioned nuance. In other situations, this is a harder line to draw. Um, there might be some, some, some little bit of, of, of both, um, you know, especially in believers, but... Um, in the scenario, the fruit of her life doesn't really bear that out. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of clear in how I painted the scenario. And, and again, you'll know them by their fruits. That's sort of the diagnostic tool that Burroughs offers. He does offer a few additional things here that are definitely worth mentioning. He says, and I, I, I want to emphasize what I'm going to say next. The only person who can probably tell whether these things are actually true or applicable is the woman herself. There's a self-diagnosis that kind of has to happen here. Um, but he says, look, if you, were, if you were never troubled by your sin before the affliction came, it may not be the sin that you're so worried about. Um, if, you're, if it's truly your sin that troubles you, then in theory, if the Lord were to take away your affliction, you should still be grieved. You should still be in pain. That's the litmus test. Is it the circumstance or is it the sin that you're so worried about? Because if it's the sin, take away the circumstance, you should still be in the same state of, I hate this, I wish I hadn't done this, etc. But, um, and the, the question he's really asking is, is where is your heart at? And if it's, if it's focused more on the circumstance than the sin, you're probably kidding yourself, and this is more of an excuse than a reality. Um, he also says very, very germanely to our scenario, if you are troubled because of your sin, then you will be in great care not to sin in your trouble. Um, someone who is truly grieved over something that they've done and the consequences probably isn't going to then throw themselves headlong into compounding sin. In her case, not attending church, not praying, not time in the word, failing to fulfill her responsive duties to the body, etc. Um, 
He also says, if it's your sin that troubles you, then you have all the more need to submit to God's hand and let his wise providence have its due effect. In other words, look, you you got yourself into the situation and God's addressing a sin issue in your life. If you really care about your sanctification, then the pain of the situation will not be your primary concern. Um, he doesn't reference this passage, uh, but um, but Second Corinthians seven ten through eleven. I won't I won't read it for the sake of time, but mark that one down. Second Corinthians seven ten to eleven. If if it really is the sin that you are concerned with, then the fruit and the characteristics that that concern would bring out should be godly sorrow. It should be repentance. It should be a desire to see the situation confessed and restored. Your actions should match your profession. Um, And if you're really upset about your sin, then we should expect to see that and not just concern over, you know, kind of the pain that you're in or the situation or how bad a husband you have and those sorts of things. Tim. Clevering what repentance is, is that Satan, Satan means accuser. So... You can be totally in the grip of, you know, Satan's influence and be feeling bad about your sin. <laughs> yeah. So that's not repentance. Repentance doesn't terminate on ourself. It terminates on God. It's returning. So if somebody is just stewing in what may, they may feel is re- repentance, but all it leads into is unending sorrow. There's no hope. I would say that's not repentance. Maybe that's just condemnation. I mean, there, there is a place of Repentance is a return to God. It doesn't make all the sadness suddenly go away. And all, you know, it's not this instant thing, but that would just be a question too. Is is this actually a return to God, which yields hope because of what Christ has done, or is it just stewing in guilt? And oh, in that in that Second Corinthians passage, I mean, Paul talks specifically about godly sorrow and sorrow according to the world. There, you know, both are sorrowful, both are grieved. But one leads to repentance and and a vindication, and the other one leads to, you know, a, a desire for the lack of consequences, a regret that the, I did the thing that led to the bad thing that I'm really upset about. Minimizing, well, I don't think I should take off. It is minimizing the the work of Christ on the cross, mm-hmm. and um, and in the sense of like you know like we can you know like say our sins are horrific, yeah. but His grace is more. Yeah, absolutely. And we will, I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to, we're going to, Burroughs is going to emphasize that uh, a few times later. Um, All right, let me move on to the third one. Um, I am not discontented over my circumstances. It is the fact that God has seemed to abandon me in my affliction that pains me so. So uh, this may be our, yeah, I think this is our last denial excuse. Um, But again, go to, I'm not actually discontented. It's not my circumstances that is paining me. She would say, it's not my husband or his lack of leadership. What really hurts, the reason why I'm so bitter and angry and grieved is it's the fact that God has, has seemed to abandon me. Rather than being with me, rather than comforting me with peace and joy, with gentle reminders of himself, God has left me alone in my pain. Um, let me pause there and just make a quick housekeeping note. I'm, I am trying quite hard to, to take these sort of, these excuses and make them things that I've heard or things that I can imagine people actually saying. Um, so do raise your hand pretty please if you're like, I can't imagine anybody saying that and we'll try to massage that a little bit. But um, in any event, this particular point is, is, a, is an accusation that God has abandoned them. And there's an important distinction that, that, that Burroughs implicitly makes that I want to make a little more explicit. 
There is such a thing as a season in which you don't feel God's nearness or presence as fully as you would at other times. That is a thing. But it is not the same thing as saying that God has abandoned you. Um, an analogy is, um, you know, when, when you've got a kid who's learning to ride a bike without training wheels for the first time, there's a part of that experience where the, where the parent is running alongside with the hand on the, the seat, and there's a part of that experience where the parent lets go and the kid kind of rides away. There's a time of nearness and there's a time of deliberate distance. But that's not the parent abandoning. The parent's still watching like a hawk. The parent's still ready to swing into the action if the kid falls down. I mean, they're still, it's, it's, it's deliberate, it's intentional, it's not abandonment. Um, it's just deliberate distance. And, but when a discontented person is talking about you know, God abandoning them, they're, they're not usually talking about deliberate distance. They're, they kind of mean that God has put them aside and stopped taking care of them. That's, the, that's generally the nuance, says Burroughs. Um, and to this, Burroughs says, hold on a second. Let's be clear. It is an evil thing for us to accuse God of abandoning us. It is an evil thing. It's a viewpoint that speaks to an unbelief in God and a denial of his goodness and his covenant faithfulness. To say that God has abandoned me is not a morally neutral statement. It is an accusation of the highest order. Be very careful making that accusation. He, um, he cites Exodus 17. Um, and can I get a volunteer to read that one? I've, that one's, Exodus 17 is verses 1 to 7, not the whole chapter. Anyway, thank you. The people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, talking with, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because the quarreling of the people of Israel because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So notice in that passage we have discontented Israel doing all the things we've seen discontented Israel do in previous passages in, in this course. Um, this time over over water. And it's the, same, it's the same sort of accusation against God that happens over and over and over and over again. But notice in verse 7 that when they asked whether the Lord had abandoned them, when they doubted that he was with them, they tested him. When they said, is the Lord among us or not? When they questioned his faithfulness, that was a test. Um, to doubt the Lord's faithfulness is to provoke him. And that's, that's kind of the context of the word test here. To doubt the Lord's faithfulness is to provoke him. It is an accusation of the highest order. Now, Burroughs then pivots and says, look, you know, God has not abandoned you, period, full stop. I'm sorry, Jeff, do you want to? Oh, you're stretching. No, I, I have a question. Uh, <laughs> go ahead and ask your question. The, can you talk about maybe the balance between, like you said, accusing God of abandoning you being a heinous thing versus the kind of what we see in the Psalms and David and 
just that feeling of, you know, like look, I was looking at Psalm 89. Like, how long will you hide yourself from me, God? How long will you, you know, your wrath burn against me? Like these kind of just longings of the heart and just the outworking to try to work through those things, I think, feeling these ways versus accusing God of that, like kind of the real I feel alone, I feel abandoned issue versus like the accusing of God of it, like kind of the interplay between, I don't know the interplay, but just walking that line, I guess, I don't know. Totally a softball question, I appreciate that. Um, the <laughs> No, no. In, in fairness, it's a, it's a good example because you do see you do see this 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 longing, like in the Psalms in particular, um, and this sense of of in some way, shape, or form, God feels distant. Um, God feels against the person, and so they're where are you at, God? Like, come near me. I, I need you. I, I think I think that language again. That's why I gave the, the the bicycle analogy. There's a difference between me saying I don't care, like. You're, you're, you're not you're not a thing to me. I don't have a relationship with you. I'm, uh, I'm. I, you might as well be just you know that chair in that corner of the room, and me giving a, a time or season where I'm I'm not there, constantly filling you with consolation, joy, encouragement, peace, whatever else. And there are times in which God feels distant, and it is that deliberate distance on God's part for whatever reason, whether that is, um, you know, teaching us a lesson, whether that is um, uh, causing us to grope at him. Burroughs actually talks about that a little bit, I think, in this in this point later on. Um, but there is a sense in which God can withdraw the nearness of his presence without withdrawing any sense of, of, of covenant faithfulness or, or relationship from us. And I think what you see in the Psalms is more that first one, and it's certainly not the second one. Um, it may feel different, but in our lives, and actually Burroughs is literally going to address it here, so let me read this one, uh, this, this, this uh, other point, and uh, see if that helps. But Burroughs says, while God has not abandoned you, if he has not provided you the consolations you want, Perhaps it is because you are in the throes of unbelief. Um, you don't feel his nearness because you have withdrawn from him. Burroughs says, perhaps God has indeed not provided you the consolations that you want, and perhaps indeed it feels, if he, if, as, feels as if it, he has abandoned you. Will you therefore abandon him? And I, I think going back to the Psalms again, you know, you have this, this sense of God, God withdraws his presence for a purpose, for a season, and for a reason. Um, and the question is, how do we react to it? You know, if you if you were in a store with your kid and you get separated, you know, does the kid stomp his feet angrily and walk off in a different direction, or does he cry and, and, and grope for where mom or dad is? Um, and there are times in which we might be, you know, um, overly blasé about God's care or presence. We might be neglectful of him, um, and he may withdraw his presence to get us to wise up, to repent, and chase after him. Um, other times it could be disciplinary. Um, it, it's not always like a one-to-one reason for it, but again, withdrawing of his presence and abandoning us are two different things, and I don't think the psalmists ever accuse God of abandoning him. A lot of words. Does that make sense? Any questions or follow-up? Excellent. All right. Um, so, in, in the in the same way, still under the same point, uh, you know, kind of going back to our scenario, um, 
you know, when, when the, 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 the woman has accused God of abandoning her, um, Burroughs had just made the point that, you know, he may have withdrawn his presence because you've abandoned him. And in the scenario, she has stopped praying. She stopped spending time in the word. She has withdrawn herself from the congregation. Um, and uh, just kind of putting a flag, you know, when, when we feel like God has neglected us, um, those sorts of activities are usually right around the corner for us. Um, we, uh, we, we tend to be that petulant child who stomps his feet and walk away as opposed to crying out for, for our father. Uh, I was going to say, I think one slight difference between like what Jeff was bringing up and sort of this scenario is, right, like the wife said, God has abandoned me. Right? Yeah. She's telling someone else this is what happened, whereas the psalmist is like, God, how long until you come back, right? Like you're talking to God still. Yeah. I think that that's an also an important distinction of the two. That's a great point. That's a great point. She is, she is talking to God and saying, please let me feel you as opposed to I'm writing you off because you wrote me off, which is a very different ethic. Um, I, uh, I didn't put it in the notes, but, um, but Luke 18, uh, verses 1 to 8, it's a parable of Jesus. Um, and I'm just emphasizing the point here that, um, you know, this, this, this prayerlessness and this, this, this uh, uh, as a characteristic of those who, who are discontent, um, Jesus tells this parable and he says, he told them this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He says, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who had kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will, will he find faith on earth? And th- this, this particular parable is told in the context of Jesus' second coming and, and the, the persecution, the tribulation the church is enduring. The fact that they are crying out, is the Lord is the Lord going to abandon them? Of course he's not going to abandon them. Of course he's going to come and he's going to make things right. Of course he's going to answer the prayers of his people. He will not withdraw from them. In the same way, the Lord's not going to do the same thing to any of his children in, in bad situations. That doesn't mean he's going to fix everything and make it rosy and give you the life you ever wanted, but he is not abandoning. And notice what I read in the very first verse. He says, he told them the parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so as we are discontented, as we're struggling, or heck, in any situation where God is feeling distant from us, we ought always to pray and not lose heart and mirror what the psalmists do. You know, how long, O oh Lord, please come back. Please let me feel you, your comfort, your, your presence, and not, not feel as if uh, he's abandoned us. Questions on that one? I know that was long, but Burroughs writes a lot. Questions, comments? No? Okay. Let's go on to number four, and we are transitioning into this next bucket. Uh, this is less about denying that we are discontented. Now we, or this woman, is admitting that she is, and so her comments take more the flavors of excuses or justifications. Um, so uh, the, the, the actual excuse is this is beyond anyone's ability to bear. She would say something like, 
the situation I am in is absolutely terrible. And, and, and yes, thank you, thank you, Bob, for coming and talking to me. I get it. But it's easy to talk about contentment when you aren't in the kind of pain that I'm in, the kind of situation that I'm in. It's easy to give counsel and advice when you're not suffering like me. And don't tell me you know what I'm feeling. You don't. Whatever you've suffered is nothing compared to this. Anyone in my position would feel this way. That's the nature of the, um, of the excuse. This is kind of like, making it funny, kind of like someone getting caught red-handed, right? Like, you're not supposed to eat the cookie. Did you eat the cookie? Well, yes, I ate the cookie, but did you smell them? They're that delicious. Of course I ate the cookie. Same way. Of course I'm upset. Of course I'm grieved. Anybody would be grieved. No one could be in a situation and not be discontented. Um, okay, and so the last couple were, 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 were denials, and so Burroughs was focused more on maybe diagnosing. Um, these are now excuses and justifications of something that we've seen as evil, harmful, stupid. Uh, and so Burroughs kind of goes into you know, attack mode um, on some of these. Uh, so uh, he gets animated in this chapter. Uh, so again, not a script, not something you want to counsel somebody on, but um, we get a different flavor of him swatting this stuff down. So he says, number one, however bad your situation may be, it is less than you deserve apart from Christ. So number one, you deserve far worse, so do not play the martyr. And number two, if you had a choice between the pain that you're in now and what you deserve, you would pick the situation you are in now. So don't be discontented. Be happy and grateful that you don't have what you actually deserve. Then, since he's already, you know, uh, uh, attacked the person, he goes for the jugular and says, it actually may be so terrible because you're discontented. And uh, we saw this in the last couple of weeks, how discontentment can actually worsen a bad situation. Uh, it's partly why it was both harmful and stupid. And so Burroughs says, your reaction to your situation may be compounding your situation. You may be making it worse. So stop being discontent and, you know, it could go better for you. Questions on that particular one or comments? All right, then uh, number, oh, sorry. Taylor has a slow getting my hand up. Um, so, you know, it's interesting that Burroughs' response was, that those are all good and true, but it seems like backing up a little bit, if I remember how you stated the scenario, like I think the first and foremost attack is that whether knowingly or unknowingly, that person is, is believing things that are biblically untrue, right? There's certain biblical truths that she is denying, such as, um, you know, this idea that no one will, if anyone was tested like I was, they would do the same thing. Well, Christ was tested in, in, in the same way, in similar ways, right? And yet without sin, right? And so, and then this and that idea too that God, um, well, you, you know, gives us great suffering and testing, yet He always provides a way out and provides His Holy Spirit to help us. Like He's, he's there to strengthen us and has given us His precious promises. I mean, there's just lots of biblical truths that that's denying. So it's like it's either knowingly or unknowingly believing and then saying a lie. And that seems like a first and foremost thing. I don't know Berto's addresses somewhere in there, but that's important. It's a great point, and I'm glad you, you bring it up because he, he doesn't. Um, he, uh, uh, I'm, I'm condensing a little bit. Again, some of these things are like eight words long, um, literally. Um, 
but he doesn't. And I think that's because he is assuming you're tracking every other word he's written so far in the book. Um, so we've talked a great deal about you know uh, what discontent does, the kind of theological presuppositions that a discontent person has, the sort of unbelieving approach, um, the, the things that it's missing, the, 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 the wrong prioritization of discontent. I think he's assuming you're, you're tracking with all of that, and so this is like extra words on top of it. Um, and which is why I'm, I, I try to be pretty clear as well, this is not a script. So if you were to in, in, talk to someone in the state, I wouldn't lead with these things. I would lead with more what David said and, and talk through those issues. And, 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 you know, maybe this is just more for awareness or maybe it slots into the conversation. But this is not a script. This is not a counseling session. Um, this, is, this is more for us to go, good point. I don't want to be discontented. Um, and again, to continue to see the evil of it. But you're 100% right, David. Christina? This is probably one of those, like, okay, what well, I need to be reminded of the first step, you know, in this process. Um, but, like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of people in my life right now who, you know, have been in the church so long, and I'm not talking about the church RCG, I'm talking about the church, and are heartbroken over areas in which the church has failed to properly represent Christ to them and to others and they are trying to find God in the midst of the system having misrepresented God to them and like and yes in their hearts they like they do feel like God has like where they're like where is he is he you know, it's like in this process, and where, how, like, like I feel like jumping to like your discontent is. I mean, yes, yes, there is a discontentment there. You know, yes, that needs to be dealt with. But I feel like it's so far into the process that, like, where, how do you like even start to like remind them that God has not failed them, even though systems have yeah. and people have. Yeah, I think I think maybe a, a, a two-part answer to that one. The second one, I might have to punt a little bit for the time, but um, emphasizing. So Christina is raising a point that we've 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 talked a couple of times about in various contexts, and it's something that's near and dear in my heart. That's why we've talked about it a few times, which is that there's emotional complexity to all of this, and just because someone is less than bubbly and happily and joyous does not mean that they are discontented. There's there's a spectrum, there's issues, there's, there's complications. And so the ability to jump in and say, you seem sad, you're discontented, is, is definitely not right or appropriate, and it's not really what Burroughs is suggesting. Um, there has to be you know, a much more nuanced, involved conversation for some of this. That's also one of the reasons why I went back to the scenario, is because you know, if you just if you just heard someone say I'm in a bad situation, and you assume they are discontented, um, that's probably not fair either. And so I wanted to paint a scenario that was clear: the person is discontented. And so how do those how do they rationalize that? Um, and so yes, please, 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 please. Again, just like these are not a script to counsel somebody who is discontented. Um, don't think that just because someone says words to this effect automatically means that they are discontented. There could be other things going on, you owe it to them, to yourself, to the Holy Spirit to have a more meaningful, nuanced conversation with that person than jumping in. Um, the second half of that, Christina, I'm happy to talk offline, but for the sake of time, I think we might need to make that a part two.
Were you going to say something, Tim? <laughs> Wilson, right. Wilson's sermon last Sunday, Psalm 42, I think is a really helpful framework of, because there could be real sin out of a place of being downcast and discouraged. There can be real sin, but the hope in God, there's this overarching framework of hope in God, remember who he is, his character. That's the framework within which there can be a call to repentance. So I think if someone is missing that, it's a bad triaging to first go, you're sinning. Put it in the broader framework of God is good, He's kind, full of loving kindness, hope in Him. You know, anyway. Yeah, I, I, really shouldn't, but I, I, just one more point, which is sometimes what the person needs in that scenario is just a, a gracious reminder and a hug, and 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 you know, going right to your sinning is is probably going to be you know unhelpful. Um, and so you got to know the person, the context, situation, your relationship with them. You know, counseling counseling is not something you do with a, a three by five card and a script. You know what I mean? It's just not how you do it. And if you try to do it that way, you're gonna you're gonna break people. So please don't. Um, okay, number number well, it's number five. I think it's letter E in your in your outline. Um, the next excuse is that this is far worse than anyone else has to endure. Um, and this one, this one sounds a little melodramatic. Uh, I'll cover that in a second. Um, but um, it's a, it's different than number four. Number four, or, or letter uh, D, was that anyone in this situation would feel the way that this person does. Discontent is inevitable. That's what that's what the previous one was. This one, instead of being having that self justifying flavor, it's got more of a self pitying flavor. Um, if you were to talk to this particular person, the woman wouldn't deny the discontentment because she would just gloss right over it. She wouldn't want to talk about the issue. She would do everything she could to just provoke you to have a conversation that's full of pity and comfort. Not her theological presuppositions, not uh, you know her feelings or, 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 or sin. She just wants that, that shoulder to cry on. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> I wrote something in my notes I hesitate to say, but um, there, there's a stereotype, right? There's a stereotype between men and women. If there's a problem, guys want to do what with the problem? Stereotype. We want to fix it. And the stereotype says, in some case, make it worse. I'm sure someone said that. Um, wh- and what's the stereotype say women want? The stereotype says they want someone to just listen. Absolutely. That's the stereotype. And for those men who've tried to fix when you should listen, it doesn't go super good typically. Um, and 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 ladies, that's okay. There there is absolutely a season for listening. And men, there's absolutely a season for listening. In this particular scenario, it seems to be listening season only. Um, you know, there's no, it's not a point in time in which you, you you give her shoulder to cry on, and then next time she opens up and you talk about real media issues. No, every single time. This is just sort of a shoulder to cry, and it's worse than anything else anybody has to endure. Um, it's, it's, it's the wailing, crying. Um, you never, ever talk about the problem, her reaction, those theological presuppositions, the unbelief she's laboring under, the hope that she has in Christ. You never get to it because you can't. Um, <laughs> and so uh, Burroughs, uh, you know, again, he just goes right for the jugular. Um, I, I, I hope for his wife's sake that uh, this is not how he counseled her. Um, but uh, he says, look, you know, fine, this, this might be a really bad situation, but you could be making it worse. Um, it would be more manageable if you curbed your discontentment. Um, you may be crying over something that you yourself are sustaining. 
Um, he says that, uh, all right, fine, let's pretend it is actually just the worst situation ever, which means that what you're really upset about is that God is being gracious to other people. Um, if you're suffering worse, that means that people are suffering less, and your discontentment is really sort of anti the blessings that God has given others. Are you really so angry that God has given grace to other people? Um, again, not a good counseling question. Good, good, good for us to keep in mind, though. Um, and then he says, if you are afflicted more than other people, then you have the commensurately greater ability to glorify God compared to other people. Um, so those are Burroughs' sort of like three responses to this particular excuse. Um, and let's, again, this, this is a pretty melodramatic framing. I can't honestly imagine anybody in the world saying that my suffering is worse than any other suffering any other human being has ever endured. Maybe someone, some caricature of a person would say that, um, but that's probably not how this is going to get expressed. I, I have no idea if people were a lot more dramatic 500 years ago, but today I don't expect to hear that. What I would expect to hear is something a lot more comparative in nature. Uh, this is where someone complains about the horribleness of a situation by comparing themselves to somebody else. Uh, so the, the, the same root issue is there. God is unfair to me. Um, and so they might say, you know, this affliction is, is unbearable because when Susie married John, he was an unbeliever, just like my guy was an unbeliever. But rather than Susie being afflicted with the same sort of like, you know, dumpster fire of life that I have, John got saved, and John's a model husband. Or Sally married... <laughs> I really, yeah. <clears throat> Apparently I picked girl names that aren't in the room, but not, uh, not guy names. <laughs> Sally's married to a jerk, but at least he picks up after himself and, and cares about his kids. I have it so much more worse than Sally. That's, that's probably what we would hear in, in this same basic element or ethic, but... Uh, probably less in this grand melodramatic way. Questions on that particular one? All right. Uh, next one. If it were a different affliction, I wouldn't be discontented. Um, so this, at its heart, is someone saying, this particular affliction or painful providence is ill-suited for me. Um, and so there's a couple of ways this excuse could manifest um, uh, maybe she feels if she saw that this was a consequence for something that she did, that this affliction is not the right consequence for her sin. It's disproportionate. It's 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 not necessary. Um, you know, she could have she could have learned her lesson in a different way, in a less painful way. Um, this you know, in the scenario, this is affecting not just her marital relationship, but her relationship with the kids, relationship with the church, and so it's too far reaching. Um, Maybe uh, she feels that it's unfair to those third parties in her life. I'm, I'm discontented. This is wrong because it affects my children. I sinned, not them. I should be the one getting the punishment. God is doing wrong by way of my children. Um, either way, there is an implicit accusation that God is being unfair and that also somewhat implicit that her discontentment is both justified and perhaps God's fault. Um, Burroughs uh, does uh, uh, address this as well. Uh, he makes a couple of brief points. Number one, that God's grace is sufficient for any situation and not just some. And so whatever situation you find yourself in, he is able to address it and work in you as 
necessary, not just in some situations. Um, he also points out that God chooses the most suitable providences for us. We may not see it, but another situation might tax us more. Um, it might harm those around us more. It might result in less glory for God. It might have longer, more lasting consequences, or worse of all, personally for us at least, it might sanctify us less. God chooses circumstances that are best suited for us, and because it is for our good, we should view it as such. And we, uh, we also covered this a little bit last week too, but just to emphasize a really good point, you're not God. You have no idea what would have happened if you cho- chose a different circumstance. That's the point that Burroughs is making here. Um, it, it, you know, the thing that you thought could be more suitable to you could be considerably worse. You have no clue or right to question the wisdom of God to do so is the height of arrogance. He is God. You're not. And he works everything together for your good and everything exactly as it ought to be. Um, let's, I got a couple more. Let me power through a few of these before I pause and ask for questions. Um, number or letter minus seven. I need to, uh, whatever it is. Uh, I think it's number F. Um, G, G, thank you. All right. My discontent is owing to the unsettledness of my affliction. Now, this one I, 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 I think is super relatable. Um, it's the fact that the affliction is in flux. It's the fact that it doesn't have an end. It's the fact that it's not limited and finite. That's the problem. Um, if you get laid off, that's a decisive act. That happened. You can address it. You can collect unemployment. You can go look for another job. But it's something that happened that at least theoretically has a, has a start and a finish. Um, Whereas in this scenario, this lady has no idea if this is ever going to end or not. This could be the next 80 years of her life, or it could resolve itself tomorrow. Uh, She has no idea this is going to evolve or get worse. Um, the husband could take his neglect uh, to the next level. Um, you know, I use, I use adultery a bunch of times, so maybe in this scenario he uh, takes half their life savings and decides that he really likes puppetry and wants to, you know, invest in that. And so now he's squandered their life savings in addition to abandoning his family in practice. Um, and it, it could even be compounded by what often happens, which is sort of like periods of, of hope, right? So, you know, the wife confronts the husband, you're doing X, Y, and Z, and he goes, oh, yeah, 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 good point, good point. And there's a season in which he sort of does the right things, and then slowly but surely he backslides. And so she has no idea whether or not that season of hope is going to be another short-lived thing or it's going to be, you know, the, 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 the turning of the ship. And so her complaint is that all of this is entirely up in the air. It's got no end in sight. That's why she's discontented. Uh, Burroughs, uh, again, on the attack, says, uh, number one, it is unbiblical to think that our lives are settled at all. What do you mean it's up in the air? Everything's up in the air. Uh, James four thirteen to 16, uh, come now, you who say, tomorrow or today, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. 
Now, we, uh, you know, in, in, who are not farmers, um, who, who have jobs um, that have a paycheck and, and, and laws that protect our employment and those sorts of things, we have this veneer of security and safety that we often rely on. I know, at least in theory, where that paycheck is going to come from. We've got a budget and bills and all of it's sort of like there's a system around all of it. But that doesn't mean life is settled. You could drop dead tomorrow. You could have a stroke in your sleep and be unable to go to work. Um, there could be a tsunami in Japan, as happened a couple of years ago, and tank the Japanese stock market, and your particular company ends up losing a bunch of money, and you get laid off. Nothing is settled. Nothing is settled. Nothing is certain. Every second of every day, we are entirely dependent on God. To think that your situation at present is unsettled presumes that there are aspects of your life that are settled. Instead, we are to focus on seeing moment by moment our dependence on God and trust him. And Burroughs takes that and ratchets it up a little bit more and says, the unsettled state that you're in is perhaps to teach you of your dependence on God. And uh, Burroughs warns heavily against the, the danger of a prideful, mistaken sense of independence from God. He says, quote, When a soul lives in mere dependence upon God so that sensibly he sees that God has advantage of him every moment, that soul exercises faith and begs every day for its daily bread. But if God hedges that man about with wealth and prosperity, such as through an inheritance or a fixed salary, he is not so sensible of his dependence upon God and begins to pay less toil and custom to God, meaning he doesn't give God his, his due praise and petition. In other words, perhaps again, God has made your affliction unsettled to drive you to prayerful trust in him. Um, Burroughs also says it's entirely possible, too, that this unsettled state may be for your comfort in that it drives you um, to think less highly of this life and less protectively of this life and more on the inheritance that you have in Christ. Um, he says sometimes we experience afflictions that are tended to pry us from an undue and improper emphasis on the life that we're living now. Um, not that we're supposed to abandon our homes and go live in a cave and eat you know, a, a, a blade of lettuce a day or to go live on a 40-foot tower uh, day in and day out, which are actually things Christians have done over the centuries. Um, he just means that as we use the things in this world, we shouldn't forget that they're temporary, that we are aliens and sojourners, that our inheritance is better than anything we have um, in this side of the second coming in Christ, and that our afflictions may be intended to help us see that we have over-cherished this world and help us refocus on the new heavens and the new earth. All right, just a few left. Um, I am discontented because God has previously blessed me so. Uh, look, if I'm walking down the street and I, I trip over a gutter, it's going to hurt. If I trip out of a third-story window, I'm going to die. The harder the fall, the bigger the fall, the more the pain. And so the, this person is uh, upset in particular because things were so great before the affliction. You know, maybe she had the, before she got married, she had the world's greatest fiancé. This dude was like, he was on everything. And then all of a sudden they get married and bam, downhill. Um, maybe early in the marriage she had that fantasy life that every single person looks at and then it went downhill. Um, either way, she's, she's discontented, she says, because she fell from such a lofty height. Burroughs says, okay, you were never promised endless prosperity. Not a promise that you have. 
He says, uh, you should be grateful for the smooth sailing that you had and not be bitter about it ending. Being discontented because you were once blessed and now lack something is tantamount to being upset that you were once blessed. And that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, and again, going back to the previous point, you know, you, you, you have no idea whether or not your being blessed previously has, would actually have made, sorry, you have no idea if not being blessed previously would have made the situation any better or any worse. Um, again, you're not God. And any imaginings that we have about what it would have been like had this different set of circumstances been the case is really just the speculation of a limited mind compared to the depth of wisdom and understanding that God has in, a, in, in organizing providence. So you're not God, again, Burroughs says. Um, questions on that? I got two left and then a little bit of a conclusion. Questions or comments so far from anyone on these last few that I went through? Okay, excellent. All right, so um, second to last one. <laughs> I hesitate on the number. Uh, I, I think it is. Um, I am discontented because I worked so hard. So in our scenario, imagine that this woman had worked herself to the bone to create the best marriage possible. You know, um, she read all the right books. She got extra premarital counseling. Um, you know, she did everything. Let's, let's, let's say she, she stayed at home. She, you know, she took cooking classes. She kept the house spotless. She made all his favorite meals. Um, if she didn't stay at home, if she went to, to work, she, she found a job that paid as well as possible but didn't take away from, you know, time uh, at church or ability to spend time with her husband. She kind of maintained that, that mythic work-life balance everybody wants. She worked her, her, herself to the bone to be able to make sure this was as good a marriage and a life as possible. And yet all of this ended up the way it did. And that's why she's so upset. She worked so hard, and that's, that's what hurts so bad. Um, that's why she's so angry. She's so bitter. Uh, Burroughs, Burroughs says, um, no, not, not doubting that you worked yourself to the bone, not doubting that you, you put a lot of time and effort into it. Hopefully, you should have done that for God's glory, independence on him and because you were submitting to his will for your life or were you working presumptively apart for god apart from god in an effort to control your future really two different extremes two different possibilities which one were you working for because if it was the latter and it sounds like you probably were working with the latter in an effort to control your future that doesn't work we don't control our future we can't ensure certain things happen in our lives and there is no amount of preventative effort that we can put in to ensure that this bad thing or that bad thing doesn't happen. Rather than trying to be in control, again, our job is to work for God's glory in submission to him and in dependence upon him. And the person who does that, when affliction comes, will be infinitely more prepared to be content in that affliction than someone who is working to ensure that they live the exact life that they want to live. And then finally, letter J, back off. I'm not rebelling against God. 
So in this scenario, the, the woman has decided to play the Pharisee. Um, and uh, there's, there's two variants here. One, uh, she has chosen to redefine the issue. She is drawing a different line in the sand than Burroughs has so far as to what is sin. Um, she's saying, I'm bitter. I'm angry, absolutely. I have, I, have, I, have, I have angry feelings about what the Lord is doing, but I'm not acting out against him, and therefore, I'm not sinning. Um, the second variant of this, maybe slightly more common, um, <laughs> is not that she's not you know, necessarily sinning. Okay, fine, I might grant you that my feelings of bitterness and angerness are wrong, but uh, look, it's not that bad. It's not that big a deal because I'm not acting out. I'm not cheating. I'm not doling away my pain with drugs. I'm not abandoning my children. I'm not filing for a divorce. If I was doing those things, you, you confront me, please. But I'm not. I'm just struggling here. So back off. Leave me alone. I'm working through this. Um, you should give her space and grace is what, uh, is what she says. So for this one, I just... <laughs> Bur- Bur- literally, it, Burroughs has like a paragraph on this one, um, but it's a good paragraph, so I'm going to read it to you. He says, Do not satisfy yourselves with that, for the disorders of your heart and the sinful workings are as words before God, meaning God hears what's going on in your heart. Uh, your sinful attitudes and affections, they're not hidden from him. It's as if you had voiced them before God. He says, it is not enough for your tongue to be silent, but your soul, or or inner man, must be silent. There may be a sullen discontentedness of heart as well as a discontentedness manifest in words, and if you do not put to death that inward sullenness, when you are afflicted a little more, it will break forth at last. In other words, okay, fine. Even if I were to grant you that right now you're not sinning big outward sins, give it time. Give it time. If you don't address the heart issue, what manifests in, in action is probably just right around the corner. All right. Questions on those comments? John. Uh, more of a comment. I would add to that last one that, um, like Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He's, he's pointing to the heart. If you don't. If you if, if you don't uh, if you hate your brother in your heart, that's tempted to murder, and that's the same here. Like, yeah, just because you didn't go and take up drinking to alleviate your discontentment doesn't mean that the heart issue wasn't still there and wasn't still sinful. Absolutely, hundred percent, hundred percent. What you do inside matters just as much what happens, you know, outside as well. Um. Okay, then let me just, uh, I'm going to conclude with this. Um, So, uh, number one, uh, next week, Tim is actually going to be back up here. We kind of planned on splitting uh, this five and five to give him the freedom from having to worry about equipping hour as they had their their baby, but he is uh, able to uh, step back in, and I am happy to let him. Um, it's been uh, it's been fun. It really has, but work has been ramping up, and so he's graciously offered to give me a, a relief valve, which I am gratefully taking. Um, so he's going to conclude the course. Funnily enough, again, next week's a little more upbeat. So I literally did get all the bad stuff. <laughs> I lost my one week of good cop. Yes. So um, <clears throat> I'm I yeah I'm not bitter about that at all. Um, 
And then second, um, and I hope this is still the case because he asked me to do it like four weeks ago, but um, I, in the very, very beginning of this course, way back on December 4th, Tim opened up with a homework assignment. Um, and he asked folks to sort of do two things and to write this down in some place you weren't going to forget or throw away. Um, and the, the, the two questions were, you know, as you think about various Christian virtues, and you know, you could you can make a long list. Um, where and if, if number if you were to rank each one in terms of how you're doing with it, with one being I am horrible at it, to ten being I got this in the bag. By the way, none of you should pretend it for anything. But if 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 that's the scale, where how would you rate contentment? Is it a five? Is it a seven? Is it a three? You know, negative two. Wherever you're at with it, you know, that, that was one of the questions. And the other one, what are the areas of our life in which we are especially prone to discontentment? What are the areas in our lives in which we are particularly prone to discontentment? So I trust uh, that will come up again next week. Um, if not, I'm laying an obligation on Tim that he may have forgotten about. But either way... Um, <laughs> Good. Okay, good. So uh, if you don't remember those, what you put, dust uh, dust them off or or answer them afresh, please, uh, in preparation for the last class next week. But with that, let's let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord, we know that you see the heart, and we know that our petty fig leaves that we tend to clothe ourselves with when we sin are no more effective than Adam and Eve hiding in the garden from you. You see everything. You know everything. You know our hearts. May we prioritize our sanctification. May we prioritize our, our pursuit of Christ-likeness, Lord. Uh, may we maybe do everything that we do with humble submission and gratitude to Christ and through Christ and for Christ. And if there's any areas in our life in which we are particularly subject to discontentment, root it out, Lord. Squash it. Cause us to see it. Batter away these excuses or others that we may use to justify it. And may we be a people who reflect, even in the hardest of circumstances, a trusting, dependent, submission, submissive joy in your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.